Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Woodburn Baptist Church. My name is Tim Harris. I'm pastor, uh, luckiest man alive. I don't think I haven't said a word about the fact that uh, two weeks ago was my anniversary with you guys. I've been your pastor for 25 years. 25 years. Thank you guys. Oh, gosh. Uh, we've been through a lot together. Most of you were only babies when I came. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's been, man, 25 years goes by really, really fast. I am the most blessed man alive, I know that. Uh, open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 21. Let's jump right into the Word of God today. In a new message series entitled Firefall, we're looking at uh, the books of 1st and 2nd Kings in the Old Testament in order to capture the stories of the prophets Elijah and Elisha. Elijah and then Elisha who comes after him. I am skipping several stories between where we were last week and where we are today. Last week we were in chapter 17 where Elijah makes his first appearance. And today we're going all the way to, to chapter 21, 1 Kings chapter 21. Mostly I'm skipping over stories that I feel like I have preached a lot. In 25 years I've preached uh, in some ways, preach them to death. The story of Elijah on Mount Carmel facing down the prophets of Baal. It's a great story. I love it. Uh, but I've chosen not to preach that one this time around. And also uh, the still small voice, which I've preached several times very recently. Today we're going straight to chapter 21. One of the stories in the saga of Elijah. Uh, and this turns out to be a story of a, a little guy named Naboth who owned a vineyard. First Kings chapter 21. Let's jump right in. If you're there, say there. All right, let's read it. 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 1. Now there was a man named Naboth from Jezreel who owned a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of King Ahab of Samaria. One day Ahab said to Naboth, since your vineyard is so convenient to my palace, I would like to buy it and use it as a vegetable garden. I'll give you a better vineyard to exchange, or if you prefer, I'll pay you for it. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance that was passed down by my ancestors. So Ahab went home angry and sullen because of Naboth's answer. The king went to bed with his face to the wall and refused to eat. Big baby. Verse 5. What's the matter? His wife Jezebel asked him. What's made you so upset that you're not eating? I asked Naboth to sell me his vineyard or trade it, but he refused, Ahab told her. Are you the king of Israel or not? Jezebel demanded, get up and eat something. Don't worry about it. I'll get you Naboth's vineyard. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent them to the elders and other leaders of the town where Naboth lived. In her letters, she commanded, call the citizens together for a time of fasting, give Naboth a place of honor, and then seat two scoundrels across from him who will accuse him of cursing God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and other town leaders followed the instructions Jezebel had written in the letters. They called for a fast, put Naboth at a prominent place before the people. Two scoundrels came and sat down across from him. They accused Naboth before all the people, saying, he, he cursed God and the king. So he was dragged outside the town and stoned to death. The town leaders then sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. When Jezebel heard the news, she said to Ahab, you know the vineyard Naboth wouldn't sell you? Well, you can have it now. He's dead. So Ahab immediately went down to the vineyard of Naboth to claim it. Verse 17. But the Lord said to Elijah, go down to meet King Ahab of Israel who rules in Samaria. He will be at Naboth's vineyard 
Okay, stop right there. Whose vineyard? Naboth's vineyard. Isn't Naboth dead? Yes, he is. Whose vineyard is it? Oh, it's still Naboth's vineyard because God still calls it what? Naboth's vineyard. God still calls it Naboth's vineyard. I I love that. He'll be at Naboth's vineyard in Jezreel claiming it for himself. Give him this message. This is what the Lord says. Wasn't it enough that you killed Naboth? Must you rob him too? Because you have done this, dogs will lick your blood at the very place where they lick the blood of Naboth. Verse 20. So my enemy, you have found me, Ahab exclaimed to Elijah. Yes, Elijah answered. I have come because you have sold yourself to what is evil in the Lord's sight. So now the Lord says, I will bring disaster on you and consume you. I will destroy every one of your male descendants, slave and free alike, anywhere in Israel. I'm going to destroy your family as I did the family of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, and family of Basha, son of Ahijah. For you have made me very angry and have led Israel into sin. And regarding Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will eat Jezebel's body at the plot of land in Jezreel. The members of Ahab's family who die in the city will be eaten by dogs, and those who die in the field will be eaten by vultures. Verse 25, no one else so completely sold himself to what was evil in the Lord's sight as Ahab did under the influence of his wife Jezebel. His worst outrage was worshiping idols, just as the Amorites had done, the people whom the Lord had driven out from the land ahead of the Israelites. Verse 27, but when Ahab heard the message... He tore his clothing, dressed in burlap, and fasted. He even slept in burlap and went about in deep mourning. Then another message from the Lord came to Elijah. Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has done this, I will not do what I promised during his lifetime. It will happen to his sons. I will destroy his dynasty. Ahab repented. I did not see that coming. I did not see that coming. Let me introduce you to a uh, sweet woman named uh, Edith Macefield. Uh, this is Edith. This is her house, uh, and that's important. Uh, Edith uh, moved to Seattle in uh, early 1950s. This is about 1952 when she bought this house at 1438 Northwest 46th Street in Old Seattle, Washington. Uh, she bought this house. Uh, as I said, in 1952, she paid, I think, $3,750 for it. It was 1,050 square feet, which is small, but it was exactly the right size for Edith, who lived alone for years. For a short time, her mother came to live with her. Her mother's name was Alice. Alice lived in the house, too, with her until Alice died. Edith cared for her mother, Alice, until the day that Alice died on the burnt orange sofa in the front room of the house. Edith just loved her house so much. This is her old Ford. I think it's a 1930-something Ford, which she drove uh, in the 50s when she bought the house. She just loved her house, y'all, and she just lived there forever and ever. This is shortly after she moved in. Is she pretty? She called the place Whitewood Cottage, made a sign out back, and uh, just lived her life. She worked for Spick and Span, not ever making a whole lot of money, but she ended up paying off her house in two years. In two years. She paid off the entire price of the house, and so she just lived there. A neighborhood kids say that she used to play golf in the yard sometimes. Um, at night, she would go inside. She would write short stories and uh, listen to music. She played the saxophone 
uh, of all things. Uh, they say that as the sun went down, Edith would yell out the door to tell all of the kids to get off her yard and go home. And, and that's what they would do. Uh, Edith here is seen in front of her massive music collection uh, and movies. Uh, she just loved her house, uh, loved music, and loved everything about her life. She lived all of her days in that house up until the early 2000s. Here she is, uh, Edith Macefield. As her life progressed and as everything began to change around her, the uh, old city of Seattle became the new city of Seattle, and the uh, uh, development of the city moved further and further out toward the neighborhood where Edith lived. Uh, developers began to come and buy up the houses around Edith. They offered a good money for the houses and all of her neighbors sold, but as it turned out, Edith wouldn't sell her house. She loved her house. She lived there since the 1950s. She paid $3,000 for it. Her mother died on the couch in the front room, and Edith planned to live out her life and just die in that house. Uh, in about 2005, the developers really came knocking. They were determined to get Edith's house. It was the last house on the block, and everything was building and developing. And they started at about $300,000, which is a lot of money for a house you paid $3,000 for. But you have to understand... Edith wasn't for sale. Her house was not for sale. By the end of 2005, they were now offering Edith over a million dollars. They were offering her over a million dollars for this house on Northwest 46th Street in old Seattle, now becoming new Seattle. She still said no. I mean, a million dollars, there wasn't anything in the world that she needed and nothing that she wanted other than just to be left alone to live her life in her house and so they never bought her house. It was never for sale. She turned down uh, over a million dollars until June 15th in the year 2008. Edith uh, walked into the front room of her house and laid down on the couch and died. Okay. Meanwhile, as I say, the city just bent right around her house. This is before she died. This is Edith's house right here. Uh, this is her blue Chevy. And this, look, she's got her very own handicapped parking place right there in front of her house. Y'all, she, she wasn't moving. She didn't leave. She never left. They bent the city around her until, as I say, on June 15, 2008, she walked in the front room. She laid down on that burnt orange couch where her mama Alice died. And uh, Edith Macefield died right there in her own house. Uh, it's still there. Uh, this is Seattle, Washington. This is 1438 Northwest uh, 46th Street. And that is the house of Edith Macefield. Uh, I just love the old girl, y'all. I mean, I just love that story so much. I love the fact that, that, that just this woman who's kind of nobody special. I mean, nobody knew anything about her story. Nobody knew anything about her. She's just the lady that lived in a house. I mean, ordinarily, little ladies like Edith Macefield, they eventually get steamrolled by the powers that be, by the city of Seattle that was determined to take what was hers. But the problem was, what was hers was hers. And it wasn't for sale. There was no price to put on Edith Macefield's life there on Northwest 46th Street. It wasn't for sale. I just love it. I love it. And I especially love it in reading this story today because it's just a reminder that it doesn't matter about the powers that be. It doesn't matter how small certain people seem to be. I'm telling you, God knows people like Edith Macefield. God loves people like Edith Macefield. They are not insignificant to him. 
Do you understand? God knew her. God knew her story. God knew all about her music collection. God knew all about her mama, Alice. And I'm telling you, God stood for and defended people like Edith Macefield. He still does. You have to understand, everyone matters because everyone is of ultimate worth to God. Everyone matters. I know you're all thinking, yes, you know, amen. Praise the Lord, Pastor Jim. That's so true. But do you understand how true this is? Like, everyone matters, even the people you don't like, even the people that you think aren't as important as you are, the the people in town who don't speak your language or don't eat your food. I'm telling you, everyone matters. They are of infinite worth to God. It doesn't matter what worth anybody else places on your life. You matter because you matter to God. Do you understand that? Everyone matters because everyone is of ultimate worth to God, which brings us to a man named Naboth who lived in a place called Jezreel. And the only thing we know about him is that he had a vineyard. Now, we probably wouldn't know this, except that his vineyard backed up to King Ahab's palace. King Ahab was king, y'all, and his wife Jezebel was queen. They are the royal couple. Now, I know we say everybody matters, but in the world it seems like some people just always matter more. And Ahab and Jezebel, they thought they mattered more. They were the royal couple. They were on every red carpet. Jezebel was featured in People's Magazine, Most Beautiful People. I mean, this is Ahab and Jezebel. They are important. They are royalty. And Naboth is nobody. I mean, literally nobody, especially in their eyes. All he has is a vineyard. Now, understand Vineyards were valuable in the ancient world. You didn't get a productive, good vineyard overnight. It takes lots and lots of work and lots and lots of time. You don't just go out and plant vines and then come back and collect the grapes. You have to continue to tend the vines, to dress the vines, to uh, provide for the vines. And, and if you work hard, you can end up with a vineyard that, that produces good fruit. And apparently Naboth had a, a worthy vineyard, a good vineyard. Now, Ahab's got everything, and he has a certain opinion about how things go because he's the king, right? So Ahab has the the political assumption that everything in the kingdom belongs to him. He's the king. And his wife Jezebel happens to share that opinion. They are royalty. They can have whatever they want. They have that power. Naboth would have a, a, a different opinion. And this is what it means when he says, you know, Lord forbid that I should that, that I should sell you. The vineyard, which is the inheritance from my ancestors. Okay, understand a couple of things. First off, Ahab makes a a good offer. He's not trying to steal it. He just really, really wants it. And so he makes Naboth an offer that would be hard to refuse. I would say most of you would probably have sold it on the spot. Because Ahab literally says, listen, go pick you out anything you want. Go on Willow, pick you out another vineyard, whichever one you pick out and pick yourself out a nice one. I will trade it for you. I'll I'll get you whatever you want. I just want that one because it's location, 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 right? And Naboth's vineyard is located right behind his palace. So he says, whatever vineyard you want, you just go, I'll trade you for it or, or better yet, just name your price. Name your price. Whatever you say, I will write you a check right here. Name your price. The thing is, there is no price. Naboth can't be bought. His vineyard can't be bought. Because Naboth has a different idea about 
what the land represents. Again, this is the Old Testament. If you know the Old Testament history at all, you know that God himself owns the land. I mean, that's the assumption of the Old Testament. That the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The land belongs to God. But in the Old Testament, you know, after Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, they're brought into the land that's called the promised land, right? It's the promised land. And God gives that land to his people because it's God's to give. God owns all the land. And he divides the promised land between all of the tribes of Israel and then all of their families. So each family ends up with the land that's given to them from God. It's promised land. Now that's the covenant way back in the day. Naboth is living a long, long time later. But understand, that land that was given as promised land from God himself, it has stayed in his family. And that's the way it's supposed to work. In the Old Testament, the families were supposed to stay with their land. The land belonged to the family because God gave it to the family. That's their connection to the covenant. That's their piece of the promised land. Does that make sense? And that's why it's so important for Naboth. He says, you can't offer me any price because there is no price for what is to me promised land. There is no price for what is for me, my connection, not just to my father and my grandfather and his father, but no, this is my connection to the covenant. This is my connection to the salvation of God and his people. There's no price on that. What's Ahab do? Ahab loses his mind. Nobody's ever told him no before. Nobody's ever turned down his offer. So what does he do? He goes back to the palace and he pouts. He goes back and pouts. Okay, and this is how this story begins. This is the story of a man named Naboth that you probably never heard of and you never would have heard of, except that he happened to have a vineyard that backed up to Ahab's palace. Now here's the thing. Ahab and Jezebel have everything. They have palaces and wealth and prestige. And Naboth's got nothing but the vineyard, you know. But these people are so very different. Can we take a moment and compare Naboth to Ahab and Jezebel? And in doing this, can, let's just measure ourselves by what we see in God's word. And, and what I want us to consider is the fact that Ahab and Jezebel, they have everything money can buy. Everything money can buy. And Naboth happens to have everything money can't buy. Can we talk about the things money can't buy? First, I would say is contentment. Contentment. Money can't buy you contentment. In this story, Ahab and Jezebel live in the palace, and they are advertising their discontentment, y'all. I mean, they got everything, and they got money to buy what they don't have. But as it turns out, there's one thing they don't have. I mean, Ahab looks out the window, and he sees that vineyard, and he's got to have it because it's the only thing in his, in his whole sight that, that, that he doesn't already have. And the fact that there's something that, that out there that doesn't belong to him, that just flies straight up his nose. I mean, he's got to have that. He's got to have that for a vegetable garden. Now, a vineyard takes a lot of work, and nobody just mows down healthy vines in order to plant a vegetable garden, unless you're somebody that doesn't care about stuff, and Ahab's that guy. It's a vegetable garden. He'll mow down all of those vines, and he'll plant squash. 
Squash, y'all. He's just going to turn it into a vegetable garden. A vegetable garden is not valuable. A vegetable garden is nothing. But none of that matters to Ahab because Ahab does, doesn't have any sense of what anything is worth because he's got everything. You see that? Naboth, on the other hand, has what he has. And for him, it's enough. You can't offer him any price because he's not for sale. And there's nothing in the world that you can name that he thinks he needs that he doesn't already have. Do you understand the value of that? It's just called contentment. Can you even imagine that? That there would be nothing out there in the world that, that we can make you want? Because our whole culture is, is sort of built on the idea that you are very, very, you know, like if we just tell you about something that you don't have, you'll, you'll want it instantly. That's why Facebook has ads, y'all. That's why Facebook apparently reads your mind because you're just thinking, man, macaroni and cheese sounds good. And you look down, and there's an ad for macaroni and cheese. I mean, have you not had this experience yet? Man, you're a Taco Bell, man, I kill, you know, I'd love to have a fajita right now. Fajita, boom. I mean, Facebook reads your mind. It's crazy. And then all it's got to do is suggest it, and man, as soon as it suggests it, you want it. Like, dude, you've been wearing the same old pair of shorts, you know, since Jimmy Carter was president. You only got five pair of underwear with holes in them. You know, that's you. But you're looking at Facebook, and all of a sudden you see bird dog shorts with a built-in liner. Like, underwear built in. You think, man, i got to have some of those. You know, put my junk in some, you know, some built-in liner. That sounds exactly like what you need. You know, even though, again, you had the same pair of underwear, you know, like, dude. But now that you see something you don't have, you want that. Oh, you're looking at Facebook, and all of a sudden you see a picture of a purse. It's a brand-new purse with a, with a cross-body strap, and you're thinking, oh, I need that. No, you don't. You have 900 purses in the closet. Am I telling the truth? Is it about 900? Eight, 870, something like that, purses. And some of them got cross-body straps, but all of a sudden you've seen something, and it's got you. And you're thinking, okay, I'm not going to do that because you're not going to buy off Facebook because that's janky. So you just close Facebook. But then in your mind, man, you, you, you're not going to sleep good till you get that purse, you know, or those shorts with the built-in liner. It's just how we are. It's amazing how we're never satisfied. Girl, you don't need another purse. Dude, you don't need shorts with a built-in liner. But oh my goodness. If there's something out there and, and all of a sudden it looks good and this sounds good, man, we are going to get it. We're going to find a way to get it. It's strange how we have so much and are never satisfied. You have so many clothes. You have so much stuff in your house. I mean, every time you pull up in the driveway, you have to unload the car. Okay, that's weird. And that's sick. And then you open your closet and think, where did all this stuff come from? Because every time you come home, you unload the car. You just keep bringing stuff in. Not content with anything. Do you understand what the Word of God says? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. This is Paul, Apostle Paul speaking. He says, true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. Please understand what Paul just said. Godliness, again, this is another thing money can't buy. Godliness with, say the word, contentment. Godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. In other words, you want to you feel like the richest woman alive? Okay, find godliness in Christ and then add to that just contentment. Like just be content. 
Do you understand? If there's nothing out there that you want, if you have just everything that you want, then you've got it all. You've got it all. That makes you the wealthiest, the wealthiest man alive. If there's nothing out there that you want, do you understand? You have it all. And this is what Paul says, and this is the life that Christ wants for you, a life of contentment. Naboth has it. Ahab and Jezebel don't. And unfortunately, most of us don't have it. We don't have a teaspoonful of contentment. We can't turn it off. All we do is want. You got a house full of food, but you're sitting here wishing I'd quit talking so you could go out to eat because you can't wait to go out to eat. I mean, you're going to spend more money than some people have for groceries for a week. You're going to spend that on one meal and never bat an eye. Because somehow you think you deserve that. Somehow you think that's what life is. But no, this is life. Paul goes on. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world. I just want to remind you, you were born naked. You were not born with a purse with a crossbody strap on it. Which means apparently God doesn't share your opinion that you got to have one. You brought nothing with you into the world. And you're going to take nothing with you when you leave it. You will not go into heaven with your crossbody bag on. You know? You're not going to go into heaven with an, with an iPhone 15 coming out in a couple of weeks. You understand? You're not taking any of that with you. I know. I know J.C. Kirby now sells caskets that have drawers in them. They have drawers. So like when we bury you, we can put little stuff in the drawers for you. As if you're going to sit up one day, you know, in that casket and look and see what we gave you. You, you know? No. No, none of it works that way. You came in with nothing, you leave with nothing. So why can't you understand that everything you can see and have and want in this life, it's nothing. It's nothing. None of it matters. Godliness with contentment, these are the things that matter, and these are the things that money can't buy. Facebook's never going to show you an ad for contentment. You see that? Talking about things money can't buy. Contentment is the thing money can't buy. Naboth has that. Yeah. It, the amazing thing about this passage for me is how Naboth can't be bought. There's no price. No price on his land, no price on his life. Naboth can't be bought. But notice what it says two different times about, about Ahab. Verse 20, Ahab. Elijah says, I've come because you have sold yourself to do what is wicked in the, in, the, in the sight of the Lord. You sold yourself. Says again in verse 25, Ahab, more than anybody else, he sold himself completely to wickedness. Interesting. Naboth can't be bought, but Ahab sells himself to do what's wicked. That's amazing. Number two. Uh, as far as things that money can't buy that you should want, um, I would say a healthy sense of shame. Shame. Like shame on you. I mean, I know you're thinking, Pastor, why would you wish that on us? Because you need it. Here's the thing about Jezebel. She is, she is such a wicked woman. She has no shame. No shame. She wouldn't give you a nickel for Naboth's life. I mean, she kills him. She never even lays eyes on him. It doesn't matter to her. She can just write out the letters, uh, come up with the plans. She never has to get her hands dirty. I mean, this is the height of privilege here. Just write it out, plan it all. That people die, she just goes, you know, take, take the vineyard. Hey, you know, he's dead. I mean, she has no shame. Uh, y- y'all know what shame is? You understand shame? 
Shame is the feeling. Like guilt and shame are connected. They're not the same thing, but they're connected. Shame is that, it's like embarrassment. It's that heavy feeling that you have when you know that you've done something wrong. It's called shame. And it's important. It's very important. My dog has it. Like my dog, I mean, she's a dumb dog, but, but like sometimes at night she poops on the rug for whatever reason. And it's always the nice rug. I mean, I, I could show her which rug she could use, you know, but she prefers the, the, the nice one and she'll go poop on the rug. But the thing is, I know she did it. I, like I don't have to find it. I don't have to step in. I don't have to smell it. Because uh, when I wake up, she can't look me in the eye. Like my dog's like, and I know. You know, I know. My dog poops on the rug and can't look me in the eye. But there are people in this world who can lie to me and look me straight in the face. You know, they don't have any shame. My dog has more shame than most people that I know. But people who can just do wrong. They can steal. They can lie. And, and they never have any sense of qualms about that. Last night, uh, a number of us were volunteering at the Woodburn Ice Cream Supper. It was a lot of fun. Um, one of our deals was a, a little duck pond for kids. Y'all seen them? You know, you just pick up a duck, get the number off the bottom, you know, corresponds with a prize. You know, well, we didn't have a lot of prizes. So we were asking kids to, like, pick their number first, so, like, number seven. And then if they picked up the duck with seven, they could pick a prize out of the box. That's how we made, you know, the prizes last longer. But I'm standing here looking at this thinking, well, shoot, because this little girl comes up and says, seven. And then she picks up the duck. It's a yellow duck that's 11. And she's like, you know, we're like, oh, sorry, you know, next time. Puts it down. I'm thinking, well, I'm going to get in line and I'm going to say 11. You know, because now I know that that yellow duck is 11. I just saw her do that. You know, like I could have, I could figure this game out. That's why we're only letting the kids play. Because they couldn't figure that stuff out. So this little girl comes up, and she plays the game, and Edie Austin, who's awesome, Edie was, was, was running the duck pun in that moment. Uh, so a little girl won a prize. Edie said, here, pick a prize. And she got a little a, a, a skunk beanie baby. It was, it was a little beanie baby skunk. It was awesome. Little girl disappears. Okay. In a minute, that little girl came back to Edie. Little girl. And she said, I need to give this back to you. Edie said, why, honey? What, you know, why? You won that. Now, that's your prize. She said, no, I didn't really win this. When I was about to pick up a duck, that duck flipped over, and I saw the number. And so I, I just said the number because I knew I would win. And, and so I, I really didn't win. I, I cheated, and I'm sorry, and I just I need to give this back to you, little girl. Edie said, oh, my goodness, I appreciate your honesty. Here, you just keep it. Little girl said, no. No, I, I, don't, I, I don't need another toy. Um, I, I just want to give it back. Okay. <laughs> that little girl, what she had in her that, that caused her to be ashamed of herself and for cheating, and whatever it is that, that, that made her, like, know that she had done something wrong and it, and it felt so bad for her that she wanted to make that right. Okay, when's the last time you've ever had, when's the last time you, you've had to do something like that? Like, when's the last time that, that you were just ashamed of yourself for what you'd said or done, and you had to go back and you had to try to fix that, you know, because of your shame? 
I mean, it's just not a, it's not a good sign for you that in your life you don't ever have to feel ashamed of yourself. It's not a good sign for you, sir, that, it, that you don't ever have to walk into the other room and say, honey, I'm sorry, I was wrong. It's not a good sign for you that you don't ever have to say you're sorry you were wrong. It's not a good sign for you that, you know, like, when you pray, you can just, you know, count your many blessings, name them one by one. I mean, you can just, you know, you can just break your own heart talking about how good God is. But when's the last time, like, your heart was broken because of your sins? Like, have you ever just had to confess your sins, like, name them one by one? Rod led us earlier in the service in, in, in a shattering prayer of confession. I mean, the opening words for me, it was something about, you know, uh, the, the, sins that we've, you know, the sins that we've committed and the sins that we've omitted. You know, it's a way of saying that I, I sin because of things I do and then I sin because of things I fail to do. I can sin because of the things I say. I can sin because of the things that I don't say. In, in that prayer, we talked about prayers that we committed when we were younger and prayers that we've committed more recently. And I just find that shattering. It's a shattering prayer of confession. But my hunch is there weren't very many of us in this room shattered by that. You just glided right through all of that. You know, matter of fact, some of you are thinking, man, this is the longest prayer ever. I mean, can he just not wrap this up? You know, this service is going to take forever if we're going to have to pray about all of our sins, you know. There's just something wrong. There's something really broken in you that you don't ever have that sense of shame. I mean, honestly, you ought to be ashamed of yourself for the life that you live, for the way you are at work, for the way you treat people at school. I mean, you ought to be ashamed of the way you have done your wife, the way you've just crushed her, the way you talk to your own kids. I mean, you ought to be ashamed, but, but you're not. I, I just want to say a couple of things, and this comes from the story of Jezebel, who can do all of this and, and never, ever, never have a, a single moment of guilt or shame. I just want to remind you, just because you can do wrong without guilt or fear, it doesn't mean you're not guilty or that you have nothing to fear. I mean, the Bible makes perfectly clear, I mean, sinners got hell to pay. And some of you got hell to pay, and you don't seem concerned about that, but you should be. You, you should be. And the fact is you can glide through life without ever feeling like you, I mean, you don't think anything you do is wrong. You never have to apologize. You never have a feeling of shame. I'm telling you, just because you don't feel guilty, it, it doesn't mean you're not guilty. And you really ought to stop and consider that. And then I just beg you. To just strive to stay in touch with that natural, healthy ability to feel ashamed of yourself when you do wrong. You don't want to lose that. That little girl at the ice cream supper, man, that, that is why Jesus says, you know, the kingdom of heaven is going to be filled with, with, with these. Things. He's talking about children because they still have that sense of shame. They still have that need, and they don't have to be right all the time. And, and, and you've lost that. You've lost that. And the fact that you've lost touch with that shame inside of you, that's a bad sign for you because here's the thing. In order to receive forgiveness, the scripture says you have to confess your sins. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins. But you don't ever confess sins because you don't think you sin. You don't have anything to confess. You don't have anything to feel guilty for, nothing to feel ashamed of. And that's your problem. When you don't feel shame, when you don't feel guilt, then you don't ever confess any sin. And if you won't come to Jesus confessing sin, do you understand? You can't be forgiven. It's condemnation when you lose this. When you begin to feel like everything you do is fine, everybody else just needs to deal with you. You know, Understand, there's something profoundly spiritually broken, and this is not good for you. 
Jezebel can sin, no guilt. I mean, she can just order the death of people, and she does it over and over and over. She says, no, I mean, she can look you straight in the eye and do anything she wants, and I'm telling you, that's not a good sign for her. That's why the Bible says this is a wicked woman. So verse 20, uh, Elijah comes, because you know he's going to, right? I mean, Ahab and Jezebel don't give you two cents for Naboth's life, but God cares about Naboth's life. I love the way God says, hey, go get Ahab. He's down at Naboth's vineyard. I mean, in God's mind, that's still Naboth's vineyard. It doesn't matter if Ahab's already put his mailbox by the street. That will never be his land, not in God's eyes. God saw, God knows, and God's not going to forget that. Not going to forget. I mean, Naboth matters to God, and God's going to defend Naboth. And so God sends Elijah. Ahab sees Elijah coming in verse 20. He says, oh, well, my enemy, you found me. My enemy. What makes Elijah Ahab's enemy? Elijah's never really done anything to Ahab except tell him the truth. But see, that's the thing. Ahab doesn't want to hear the truth. Ahab's life is on the course that Ahab has chosen. And Ahab's life is a red carpet with rock stars, man. He loves his life. He has it all. But the problem is Ahab's life is on a collision course with the living God. It's not Elijah that's his enemy, it's the Lord God. And it's not that God doesn't love Ahab, God loves Ahab, but Ahab himself has made himself an enemy of God because he doesn't want the truth. He doesn't want to hear anything that, that, that would question what he's doing. He doesn't want anybody to call what he's doing sin because if Ahab does it by definition in Ahab's mind, it can't be sin. My enemy, you found me. Elijah's not his enemy. Turns out that Elijah is a friend of God. And in Ahab's kind of world, the fact that Elijah is a friend of God, so that way Elijah speaks for God and always seems to show up in just the moment when Ahab doesn't want to have to hear it, you know. Elijah's got friendship with God. It's the last thing I would mention to you today is something money can't buy you, but you desperately need. It's the, the friendship of God. Romans chapter 5, verses 10 and 11 say this. Our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies. Now you're sitting here thinking, you know, Pastor Tim, I, I don't think I'm God's enemy. You know, okay, I cuss a little and I smoke, but I really don't think I'm an enemy of God. I mean, I am in church, right? I mean, you see me in church. I got up early this morning, we ate breakfast, I put on nice clothes. You don't see me in church, how can I be an enemy of God? Well, just coming to church doesn't necessarily change your relationship status when it comes to the Lord. Something has to happen in you. You walked in church, that doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't make you a friend of God. All it does is make you inside the church. It's like my old preacher used to say, you don't, you're not a Christian just because you come to church any more than you become a hamburger by walking in McDonald's. It doesn't work that way. Something has to happen in you, and I'm telling you, it's not something that money can buy. It's not even something that you can do in your own power. We're talking about your sin here. It's your sin that puts you on a collision course with the living God. It's your sin that makes you an enemy of God, and you can't do anything about that. I really don't think you can. Because if you could be a better man, you'd already be a better man. 
If you could be a better woman, Lord knows you'd already be a better woman. I mean, it's not in you. It's not going to come out of you because it's not in you. You can try as hard as you want, but you're not going to solve your own sin problem. You need a Savior. And that's why Jesus comes. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Jesus does that for you by his death on the cross. He died for your sins. He took your punishment. So now all you have to do is receive that. You have to want it. Just be willing to receive that change of status. God will transfer you from death over into life, from the category of enemy over into the category of friend. He does this because of Jesus' work on the cross, his grace for you. And it's pretty amazing, actually. Like I say, verses 25 and 26, you know, take a little time out. It's in parentheses, just, you know, like, you know, or just reminding you that Ahab, you know, this dude, he is the worst. Like 25 and 26, the story stops just to kind of whisper to you, this dude is the worst. We had 19 evil kings in a row, and they were all evil. But Ahab is the most evil of all of them. Like we're reminded of that one more time. This dude is bad. And he got a lot of competition, but he's still the worst. And don't even get me started on his wife Jezebel. I mean, this is what the Bible says. Jezebel, she's horrible. These are the worst two people. I mean, as far as evil goes, they rank higher than anybody. Like the, the scripture stops and reminds you, Ahab is the worst. And then what's it tell you? What's it tell you? Verse 27. But when Ahab heard this message, he tore his clothing, he dressed in burlap, and he fasted. He even slept in burlap and went about in deep mourning. And then another message came from the Lord to Elijah. The Lord said, do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? I didn't see it coming, but Ahab repented. I didn't, I didn't know he could. You ever just looked at somebody and thought, man, she ain't never going to change. Man, he'll never change. Listen, I've known him all my life. He's like his daddy. You know, he ain't never going to change. I mean, don't you ever, don't you ever look at somebody and say she can't change. Don't you ever look at a man and say he'll never change. I don't care what you've seen. Don't you ever say he can't change. Because we're talking about the power of the Lord God here. Now, I said that, I'd already, I probably would have said Ahab ain't going to change. I didn't think, I didn't see him. Did y'all see him? Did y'all see that coming? I mean, I said he was on a collision course with the living God, and, and he was. I mean, he is. And, and I'm telling you, when you collide with the living God, he's going to flatten you. I mean, you're not going to you know, end up standing if you collide with the living God. But it's exactly what happens. Only what Ahab finds is grace and forgiveness and mercy because he humbles himself, because he listens, because he's willing to change. I didn't see it coming, but I love it. I love it because that tells me if God can do that for Ahab... He can do that for me. If God can do that for Ahab, God can do that for anybody. If God can do that for Ahab, God can do that for you. But you have to want it. I'm just being honest with you. There's nothing you can do to earn it or buy it. This friendship with God is that thing that money can't buy. but, But you do have to want it. And you have to want Jesus 
Don't be thinking that you're going to you know, call yourself a Christian, but then you're going to keep running your own life. you got to give that up. That, that desire to, to stay like you are, but, but you know, have heaven after you die, that's not the offer that's coming toward you. you know? it, it's an offer for you t- to completely let the Lord Jesus remake you, change you, take you from death to life, from enemy to friend, from darkness into light. I mean, you got to want that. you got to be ready to leave the old life and start a new life. But I'm telling you, if you want that, that's what you find. God says, oh, Elijah, by the way, did you see what happened after you preached that message? Did you see the way Ahab humbled himself? Yeah, all that I said about punishing him, just uh, cancel that. If he could do that for Ahab, he'll do that for you. Pray with me. Before I pray, can I say another word to you? Keep your head down. Keep your eyes closed. Can I just talk to you? Um, Some of you know that you're not saved. You know that you do not have a friendship with God. You know that. You've heard preachers preach like this before, and you've gotten pretty good at, like, hearing this kind of message and feeling bad in the moment, but then walking out and, and forgetting about it. I just want to beg you not to walk out today and forget about it. Today is the day of salvation. Today this offer is given to you. And I'm telling you, if, if, if you want Jesus, if, if, if you will allow him to forgive you for your sins, it can all be forgiven. But you have to want him. You have to come to him. You have to call upon his name. Would you call upon his name? There's no magic prayer, but it's going to start with you just you know, calling out to him, talking to him. Will you do that right now? Just say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I beg your forgiveness. I know that you're God's son. I know that you died on the cross. I I know that you've taken my punishment. Whatever it is that you want for me, I want that. I'm choosing that. I'm saying yes to you. I mean, there are no magic words. It's just something that happens in your heart between you and Jesus, and I'm asking you to let that happen. If if you're sitting here with a feeling of heaviness, even fear, it's, it's probably Jesus just knocking on the door of your heart. He, he wants you to give your life to him. Would you give your life to him? You may have gotten pretty good at hearing this and then walking away. I beg you not to walk away. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would shatter the hearts of every man and woman and boy and girl in this room and the sound of my voice. Lord, help us to see our sin, that we may recognize our need for forgiveness and then come to you. Lord, you're the only one with the power to make us new. You're the only one with the power to buy us back after we have sold ourselves to sin over and over and over. Lord God, I don't know what kind of value the world places on our lives, but you love us enough to die for us. So Lord, help us to come to you that we might live through you. Pray, Lord, that you will... uh, Let this message of the gospel go straight to the hearts of every person who can hear it. Lord, I pray that every sinner in the sound of my voice will understand where forgiveness is found. They will come to you, call upon your name, and be saved through Jesus, our Savior. Amen.